Uh, This morning, we want to turn our attention back to Ecclesiastes chapter number seven. I'm going to read verses one through 14 together. I know we did one through four last week, but to give us the full context, we will read it together this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter number seven, verse number one declares, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay to it heart, lay, lay, lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For those, uh, for as those uh, crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the, who see the sun. For the protection of the wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that uh, wisdom preserve, preserves the life of who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Uh, Just for a few moments uh, this morning, uh, we want to share from the sermon uh, topic, uh, continuing the conversation. Continuing the conversation. Let me pray for us. Father, I am so thankful uh, for this church. Uh, I'm so thankful for the lives that are represented um, in the sanctuary today. God, thank you for bringing us together. God, not just to a location, not just to hear a man speak, but I thank you for allowing us to come together to be able to celebrate the gospel. God, to be able to live out the gospel. God, personally, I'm thankful for the opportunity this morning to be able to proclaim the gospel. God, we know that we have a lot of things going on. We have a lot of distractions, even in our midst. But I pray, God, over the next few moments that you would help us to be able to lock in. God, help us to be able to focus. God, each time we preach, God, what we're looking for is a divine conversation between your spirit and our hearts. God, we need you to do some work this morning. God, so that we will not leave here the same. In Jesus' name, I pray and give thanks. Amen. Uh, Last time we were together, I shared a little bit about my maternal grandfather. His name is Joseph Woodson Stanley. And I essentially started the sermon by painting the picture of how my granddad loved to share wisdom with all of his family members. He loved to share his experiences. He loved to share his life lessons. And as we transition to the text, we concluded that Ecclesiastes chapter number seven gives us clearly an opportunity to hear wisdom from a much older and a much wiser member of the family of faith. For those who are just joining us this morning, we must remember that as we read the book of Ecclesiastes, it is a book that we must read extremely carefully because if we do not read the book of Ecclesiastes carefully, we will walk away from the book depressed 
and stressed and if we only consider life as the book describes it under the sun. But if we take the perspective of life above the sun, if we take the perspective of life uh, where there is a God who is sovereign in control, if we take the perspective of life where God is able to meet us exactly where, he, where we are, that God is not just uh, powerful, but he's also imminent and close. If we take that perspective, we will not despair, but we will have joy and peace in our lives. In our sermon on last week, we specifically spoke about how uh, in the majority of our time together, how we need to approach the seventh chapter of the book, uh, understanding that the tone of the text has changed. Solomon is not speaking as a young man, but now he's speaking as an older gentleman. He's sharing wisdom to a younger audience, and Solomon is allowing us uh, to enter into his life, and he's, being able, he's, he's allowing us the privilege of being able to learn from his life. For those who don't know much about Solomon, we need to understand that Solomon is a man who had it all. He is a man who tried it all. He is a man who experienced it all. And when we consider the Bible, uh, we must consider that his life is a life that reminds us that you can have everything under the sun. But if you don't have a relationship with a God who is above the sun, you will miss out on the meaning and significance of what life, what, what life is really about. Uh, pl- please don't miss this. This is a man with unending wealth, with unending possessions, and now at the latter part of his life, we now have the privilege of receiving some truth for life. We have the opportunity to hear from a man who lived at a level that you and I probably will not reach. I'm not saying that to be negative. I'm saying that to give us context. No matter how long you live, no matter how much success you have, you probably will not reach the level that Solomon was on. You probably will not have the level of wisdom that he had. You probably will not have the level of wealth that he had. When we look at the text, we got to remember, we got to remember very clearly that he has something significant to say. And we would do well to listen to what the passage has to say. Uh, I can remember being a younger person when my parents would tell me, uh, don't, don't, uh, don't rush to be old. Like, you got it good. You got to pay no bills. You got food in the refrigerator. You got to worry about the cable. You don't got to go to work. You got to just enjoy life. Man, I wish I could go back to them days. <laughs> I, I wish I could hit the rewind button and take the wisdom that I have now and apply it back then. And I want you to kind of catch the picture. Like sometimes the scriptures speak to us in a very clear and concise way. And we can be like that young, stubborn person, that young, stubborn version of ourselves, And we can ignore and miss the message. Really, anytime we read the Bible, not just in Ecclesiastes 7, anytime we open up the scriptures, we got to remember that God is trying to speak to us in a clear and significant way. And we have the choice whether or not to apply the truth or ignore the truth. In the chapter, we see very clear and practical examples of how we can apply the truth. First, in verse number one, Solomon says that a good name is better than precious ointment. When we read verse number one in the chapter, we must clearly understand that Solomon, hear me now, is not condemning working on your appearance Uh, He is not condemning working out. He is not condemning putting on makeup. He is not condemning putting on a nice fragrance or taking a bath. He is not uh, condemning anything uh, concerning you making your outer appearance important. But here's what he is condemning. 
He is condemning pursuing the development of my outside to the detriment of my inside. In the sermon, we concluded that it is okay to wear cologne just as, we don't, uh, just as long as we don't neglect the cologne of good character. And we concluded that the cologne of good character is the cologne of Christ. Uh, even this week, I hope that you find yourself asking the question, what kind of perfume or fragrance is my life putting off? When people come close to me, what fragrance will they get? When people hug me, what fragrance will they leave with? Uh, many of us have been around an uh, 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 uncle or an older deacon uh, who maybe wore a little bit too much cologne, right? And um, one of those folks who, when they, uh, when they left the room, you can still smell them in the room, right? Uh, one of those folks, if you hugged them a little too tightly, that uh, you would leave with uh, the, the, the smell of their cologne on your body, right? It, it's a reminder in a, very serious way, in a very serious way that as believers, we are emitting a fragrance to the world. And all of us would do well. If you've been here a long time, you know I love to ask questions. All of us would do well to ask the question, what kind of perfume does my life put off? Is it the perfume of rudeness? Is it anger? Is it the perfume of, I think I'm cute and special? Is it the perfume of, I think I'm more spiritual than I really am? The perfume of discontent, of lust, of making excuses, of blaming others? The perfume of dissatisfaction with God? What kind of perfume are you putting off each day? My brothers and sisters, I'm asking this question specifically because when we ask the question, what kind of perfume is your life putting off? We're asking the question not to shame anybody, not to point any fingers at anybody, not to fuss at anybody, but we are asking the question because we do not want to waste our lives. Life is so short. Life is so brief that we have a very short opportunity to make an impact for Christ. And I've got to ask myself as a believer, am I giving the aroma of Christ daily? I want to submit to you this morning, even before we get into the meat of our message, that there is a particular kind of perfume and fragrance that God desires from your life. That God desires to use your life in such a way where people who are around you leave you not thinking about how good you look or how well you speak or how much you've accomplished, where people leave you thinking about Christ. And that requires that we put off the perfume of love, that we are reminded that Jesus says that the world will know us by our love for one another, not by what church we go to or what we dress in, but how we love one another. The world will know whether or not we have a relationship with God by the perfume of courage. Because Jesus told us in John 16 that in this world, you will have trouble. He was setting us up to, to, for the reality that life would be hard. We can have the perfume of wisdom that we can, we can know what God has called us to do. Even the perfume of peace, because it's the truth that Jesus never promised us a life without storms, but Jesus specifically promised us that we can have peace in the midst of storms. And because God cares about our character, he reminds us in the first verse number one, the eighth portion of the importance of our character. But secondly, Solomon reminds us that death is better than birth. No one wants to believe that is true. 
but your death date will, ret- will determine whether or not the work that you accomplished on this earth really mattered for eternity. For the Christian, for the believer, the, the death date is a good day because those who die in Christ are absent from this body, but they are present with the Lord. Verse that I want to put on the screen just so we can have this together. We talked about this on Wednesday night. A couple of you guys missed Wednesday night. I'm sure you won't miss this Wednesday night. But this Wednesday night, we talked about 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, verse number 6 says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would, we, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. I, I want to stop here and say, you guys catch what verse 9 is communicating? That our aim, that our goal, that our purpose in life is pleasing the Lord. Like, I know that that, that, that that seems so elementary, it seems so foundational and fundamental, but I, it's so easy for us to kind of just run past that thought and get on about our day. Like, I, I know that there's, there's some who are here who, you know, you have a 2019 strategic plan, you want to do personal development, maybe you have, you know, a vision board at the house, and none of those things, I don't have a problem with any of those things as long as pleasing the Lord is at the top of the list. As long as pleasing the Savior is at the top of my personal development list. And a lot of times it's easy for me uh, to place pleasing myself or getting the promotion or making something better for myself as a, as a priority. But here's, the, here's what it takes communicating. That you and I should make pleasing the Lord the priority of not just my day, but the priority of every aspect of my life. In the statement, Solomon is essentially telling us that we have an opportunity to please the Lord and we have an opportunity to not be pleasing to the Lord. He continues by making a statement about what he learned from life. He says, I learned more from the sorrow in life than the parties of life. He says that it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of mirth. The house of mirth is the house of entertainment. He says, if you just live your life based upon entertainment, you will not learn anything about God. And in the text, we get to verse number five, and Solomon continues his, his, his sermon and his practical um, examples of how we can live life by getting to verse number five and simply saying something about community. Verse five says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Let me read that again. Verse 5, it says, It is better for a man or a woman to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. In verse number 5, Solomon speaks to the value of godly friendships. He speaks to the value of people who are willing to hold you accountable. Now, before we get into the practical application of this point, I need to say something very, very important. Um, The longer I pastor, the more I become aware of members of our church who are hurting and members of our church who are from terrible and heartbreaking situations. If I were to to yield the pulpit this morning and if I were to open the mic and if I were to give people opportunities to share this morning, I know there will be countless members who are here today 
who can speak to, who can speak to significant hurts, who can speak to um, issues that they have not gotten over. And, and for those people, we need to do a really good job of loving them well and loving them where they are and encouraging them and not beating them down. Okay? I think that's important for me to say. I think it's also important for me to say that verse 5 is not addressing that group of people. Verse 5 is addressing a different group of people. Verse 5 is addressing a group of people that is within the community of faith that A, does not want to be accountable, and B, a group that is only looking for people to tell them what they want to hear. To that group, to the, I just want someone to pat me on my back group. To the, if you disagree with me, that means you're hating on me group. To that group, what the passage is saying is, it is better to have real friends who confront you rather than having friends who will coddle you. To that group, the passage is saying, in life, you uh, must not settle for accepting friends who simply pat you on the back. The passage is telling us that we must, uh, there's a reality that we need people in our life who are not going to just pat us on the back, but we need people in our lives who are willing to point us to Christ. When you read verse number five, we must be confronted with the question. Here's the question. Is there anyone in my life who I'm willing to hear a rebuke from? Say it again. Is there anybody in my life personally that I am willing to hear a rebuke from? Secondly, do I have anyone in my life who is wise? Because if I'm not willing to hear from them, it doesn't matter what they have to say. And if they're not wise, I don't need to hear what they have to say. Verse 5 is a powerful example of the kind of community that we want as a church. We want a community of believers where we can speak the truth and love. But let me step away from the community of faith. Let me talk about your pastor personally. I need, not you, I need men in my life who are going to hold me accountable. I need men in my life who are going to look me in the eye and tell me not what I want to hear, but tell me what I need to hear. My wife is here. I'm not lying. There are three names that are very significant in my household. It's Thomas Beavers. He's my, my prep partner, accountability partner. John Brown. He's a mentor of mine. And Dr. Robert Smith. He's my preaching professor from Beeson. Those three names are constantly heard in the house. And when I am... Not you, Sean. When I am... <laughs> When I'm in my feelings, when I'm having a moment where I'm being stubborn, where I'm being frustrated, where I don't want to listen, it is not uncommon for a video to say something like this. You call Beavers yet? <laughs> hey, hey, bro, you ran that by Dr. Smith yet? Hey, hey, have you, have you called John Brown to, to run that idea by him yet? And what she's essentially saying is, do you have people, and you, not just do you have people, are you willing to hear wisdom from people in your life who you trust? Now, I'm 10 years into the marriage now. Here's how the conversation goes now, right? <laughs> when we have a disagreement, I'm going to lead in with, I already talked to John. I already talked to, to <laughs> So I'm good. I'm good, right? 
in, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, do you have a John Brown in your life? Do you have a Dr. Robert Smith in your life? Do you have someone in your life who you have given permission to rebuke you? Not just permission where you've requested when I get out of line, when, when, when I begin to waver, when I begin to falter, I want you to say something to me. On the other side of the coin, because we got we to touch everybody this morning, have you grown to the place in your life spiritually where you can serve as a wise person who can offer a rebuke? Or do you operate like the other person in the text, the fool who is just singing? In life, we need to answer the question, am I living my life kind of just singing like a fool? Or am I living my life offering scripture from a place of wisdom? So number one, Solomon continues by saying something about community. But secondly, Solomon continues by saying something about contentment. Verse 8 says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Verse 8 simply says, better is the end than the beginning. When you hear this statement, it sounds good, but our sarcastic hearts want to ask the question, is that really true? One of the most practical examples that I could give is any woman who's been pregnant and any man who has been around a pregnant woman can say that better is the end of the pregnancy than the beginning. Like better is the baby outside of the body than the parasite inside the body. That's what a baby is. Taking over your body, moving your organs around. It's, 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 it's a hostile takeover that happens in your stomach, right? It's better for the baby to be born. I believe the passage is communicating that when we keep the end in mind, we're able to be focused on glorifying the Lord. When we keep the end in mind, we're able to endure to the end. I believe that's really what is being communicated in Hebrews chapter number 12. Go with me there. Hebrews 12, verse number one says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which, so, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Here's the key. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of of the throne of God. When the passage says Jesus endured for the joy that was set before him, it was communicating, it's communicating that Jesus kept the end in mind. And that is what is being communicated in Ecclesiastes 7, that we must understand that the end goal and the outcome is, is a protection from us losing sight of why we are living the life that we are living. The text also tells us very clearly, when we keep the end in mind, our patience will increase. Um, as believers, we must do the hard work of staying laser focused on the end goal. 
Because in being focused on the end goal, we are focusing on what matters the most. The passage is literally telling us when we are focused on the end, anger will decrease and patience will increase. Verse number 10 kind of throws us for a loop. It says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not for that is not from wisdom that you ask this. The passage is giving us a practical application of the text. It's saying, don't say or don't be focused on your former days. It's not wisdom that you ask this. To help us make sense, I want to look at this from two different levels, right? I want to look at it from a, from a personal level, but also from a, from a church level, okay? From a personal level. We got to remember that as believers... We have been called to keep the end in mind. 1 Corinthians 3 makes this very clear. 1 Corinthians 3 verse, uh, chapter 3 verse 11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation which is gold, silver, precious stones, wood, or hay, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 5 again. It says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Verse 10, it says, for we must, all be, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. No matter where you are, you will one day stand before the Lord. I know this makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uneasy. But here's what the scriptures are communicating. At the end of your life, you will stand before God and God will judge your works. Now, if you see very clearly, the scriptures are not, the, the scriptures, you will be, it will be a misinterpretation of the passage if you think that you are going to be saved by your works. The scripture very clearly says that the person will be saved. But the scripture says the person's works will be judged. Like how you live matters. What you do with your life matters. And at the end of my life, I want to have, hear the Lord tell me, well done because of a life that has pleased the Lord. That is where our focus must be. It's not on the here and now. It's not just on what's best for me and what's most comfortable for me and, and what my eyes see. The scriptures are encouraging us to live life in such a way where we are focused on the end in mind. I'm not focused on simply what I want. I'm focused on what the Lord wants for me. When I go back to my former days, it's a, it's a truth that because life is hard and because sin is real and because discouragement can come in, it's so easy for us to want to go back to the former days. It's so easy for us to want to go back uh, to the days before we walk with Christ. It's easy for us to want to think about how easy it was to not have to get up and come to church on Sunday, to not tire, to not come to the church work day, to not care about people's feelings. To, when, when I'm in traffic, um, when I didn't have the Calvary tag on my car and somebody cut me off, I could tell them how I really felt because there was no accountability. It's easy for me to go back to those days, but the scriptures are encouraging us 
then I'm not going to go back to the sinful life that I used to live. I'm not going to go back to the life where I was separated from God. I'm not even going to find my identity in who I used to be. I'm going to find my identity in whose I am. To be a faithful believer, I must resist the urge to always look back at my former life. This week, I want to encourage you to read John chapter number 21. It's a, it's a passage that reminds us of what it looks like when we try to go back to the life that we lived before Christ. Jesus has gone to the cross. He's been resurrected. The disciples don't really understand what's going on. And in John 21, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And all the disciples follow him. They say, we're going with you. They try to go back to the life that they lived before Christ. And it's one of the most depressing passages in the Bible because they were expert fishermen, but they were out on the sea all night and they had absolutely no fish to, to show for it. Jesus shows up. They don't even know it's Christ. He tells them to cast their nets on the other side. They do it. They, they haul in fish so many that they could not get the fish out the boat. Jesus meets them on the side of the shore and he asks them very clearly. He says, if you love me, then you should feed my sheep. It's a reminder that even in the midst of their failure, Jesus reminded them of the end goal in mind. And in reminding them of the end goal, they were able to live a life that is faithful to the Lord. I want to make this extremely practical. I want to hit a couple topics that we can apply. Take the principle of marriage. If you think about marriage, we got to understand that there is a specific end goal in marriage. The specific end goal in marriage is Christ being pleased. That requires that I love my wife like Christ loved the church. It requires that I love her and serve her and give my life away for her just like Jesus did. That requires that she submit to me and support me and come up under my authority to support the mission and the vision of our house. The end goal, though, of our marriage is Christ being glorified. The end goal is not romance. It's not great date nights. It's not great chemistry. It's not just having somebody to connect with. And when I lose sight of the end goal, my patience decreases and my anger increases. And then I begin to struggle in my marriage. When I lose sight of God's end goal, I end up creating my own end goal. And rather than focusing on Christ, I create this uh, fictitious person in my own mind. That if I was married to blank person, if I was uh, with this kind of person, if my spouse would do this, I create this unattainable picture in my own head and it sets me up for failure because here's the truth. If I'm looking for a perfect person, that person does not exist. Now, there, there, there's some here who are not married by God's design. Maybe you will, maybe you won't be married. So spare the married group for this morning because I need to say something very important about marriage. I do not want to present marriage as this ideal where you have warm fuzzies every day and it's just the greatest thing ever and you don't have any hard days. I do not want to, on the other side, present marriage as purgatory. It's not. It's really not. Marriage is not punishment, but marriage is hard because marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church. And if I lose sight on the end goal, if I lose sight on what God has called me to do, my anger increases and my patience decreases. If I have this mindset that 
Um, it's going to be perfect. I'm never going to be happy. But at the other side of it, I want to say this very clearly. There, there are things that we can demand in marriage. As a pastor, we will never, ever, ever make any excuses for any kind of abuse in marriage. Whether it's physical, emotional, sexual, abuse in marriage is not an option for a believer. We will also not make any excuses for infidelity. There is no excuse for infidelity in your marriage. So hear me clearly on this. Yes, you cannot expect a perfect person. But on the other side, you can expect the person not to break the covenant between you and God. It's very important for us to see some balance here. Here's the truth. When things get hard in my marriage, I've got to go back to the end goal. Because the reality of it is, when two sinners are living in the same house, it gets hard. I, I, I would like to think that there's one sinner in the house. <laughs> it's not the truth. Not the truth. And as a leader of my home, I've got to be responsible enough to recognize that I am required to shepherd our home in a way where we are focused on the end goal, where we are focused on what God tells us is true. When things get hard, I need to be reminded that the end goal is not my happiness, but the end goal is Christ being glorified. For those who think that, just, just if you think that your marriage would be better if you had better sex or more frequent sex, Solomon had access to over a thousand women. And if you asked him, was sex the end goal? He would tell you, it's not the end goal. For those of us who think that if I had a bigger house or a nicer house or a newer house, to that person, Solomon would tell you, he built a house that took over 10 years to build. And thousands of workers were responsible for building his house. And he would tell you that the bigger, newer, nicer house is not the end goal. If you think that the end goal of, of, of anything is other than honoring Christ, you have missed a reality that will be helpful in your life. One preacher says it this way, I think it's important. He says that when singleness is hard, the single people want to be married. And when marriage is hard, the married people want to be single. He says when no kids, when having no kids is hard, the parents want a quiver full, and when the kids are working your last nerve, you want an empty nest. He says, amen. He says when, when folks on the job are getting on your last nerve, being, being unemployed doesn't sound that bad. But when the bills are stacking up, the person will find themselves praying and pleading that God will bless them with the job. This happens because when we get the end goal wrong, when we lose sight of what God has called us to, then we forget about what God expects of us each and every day. So, so here's some more practical help for us. In my career, I've got to remember the end goal. If I lose sight of the end goal of my vocation, then my anger will increase and my patience will decrease. 
For us, we must remember that the end goal is not pleasing a man, but Colossians 3.23 reminds us that the end goal is working with our whole heart unto God and not unto man. When I lose sight of the end goal, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm mad. But when I have the end goal in mind, I'm able to be patient and consistent because I understand exactly what God has called me to. That's from a practical standpoint. Let me talk about the church standpoint for a second. Like, how do we stay content as a church, right? I, I'm, a, I'm a dreamer, right? Like, anybody who knows me well knows that I, I think about things. I think about this church. I, 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 I really endeavor to do something here at our church that is doomed to fail without God's blessing. Like, I want to go hard for God. And as I've been praying lately, I've been praying, Lord, what is the next step of faith for our church? I love this room right now. I loved how many people are in this room right now. But I got to say something that's, that's reality. We got to do something different with the room. Like, it's too many people in here. We're going to have to go to two services. We're going to have to build a new building. We're going to go into some more debt. We're going to put some, seriously, we're going to put some more pressure on the children's workers because we're going to have to have multiple services. The, the, the band, they're going to be singing a whole lot more than they've been singing this morning. Seriously. <laughs> and when you think about it, we've got to get to a place to where we make decisions not based upon comfort or convenience. The question we're going to ask ourselves is, what's the end goal? The end goal is we want to reach as many people with the gospel as possible the, the, the reality of it is, statistics tell us that once a church is 80% full, people stop coming. So we need to create space and create opportunities for people to be a part of our church. And for us, we've got to make sure that the end goal is in mind, because if the end goal is not in mind, then we will be comfortable where we are. So here's the text. It says, Solomon very clearly continues by saying something about community. Secondly, he says something about contentment, and then he closes by saying something about confidence. Verse 13 says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that, many, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Verse 13 says something very important. It says, consider the work of God. In the day of prosperity, it says, you and I need to be joyful. When there is plenty of food to eat, when, when the food is good, when the lifestyle is enjoyable, we need to know that God is at work. Avita and I, we love, uh, we love to host at our home, and, and it's inevitable that sometimes uh, whenever we have folks over, we'll just kind of slide away and we'll kind of be over in a corner. And we'll look at uh, all the people who are enjoying all the food that we cook together. <laughs> I, I'm like the sous chef. Like, I, I peel potatoes. I get things ready for. And as we're sitting back, we're watching people enjoy the work of our hands. And it blesses us to see people talking and fellowship, and it blesses us to see people connecting. It blesses us to see people who probably would not be in this context if we had not invited them into our home. When you think about that, that's really how God looks at us. When God sees us enjoying fellowship, when God sees us together, God is in heaven celebrating what only he could do. Now, if we stopped 
at verse 14 in the A portion. This will be a really, really good ending to the sermon. But unfortunately, we've got to preach the whole text. Verse 14 says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity. Man, I want to read this passage, but I want to read it differently. I want to read it so it says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful because God did it. But in the day of adversity, you can cuss, you can fuss, you can kick, you can scream, you can flip a table over because God is too good to do that to you. But that's not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying it is communicating that both are together. It clearly says, and in the day of adversity. And there is a coordinating conjunction that connects the two thoughts together. It's a reminder that these two statements cannot be divorced. They cannot be separated. We cannot pick one and choose the other. We, can, we, we cannot pick one and ignore the other. We must accept both of them together. Here's what this verse means. It means that in the day of joy, in the day of feasting, in the day of, of, of gladness, that is the day that God has given you. But it also means in the days of adversity, in the days where food is scarce, in the days where money is scarce, in the days when you go to the doctor and you receive a bad diagnosis from the doctor, that is also a part of the good work that's from the Lord. We do not want to admit that. We don't want to consider that. But it's the truth. There will be times in my life where God will ordain adversity to hit my life. And I don't want that. I want the day of joy. I want the day of gladness. I want the party. I don't want the house of mourning. I don't want to consider that. But in the scriptures, it's telling us that both of those days are days that God gives us. So here's how we got to apply this. And I'm not saying this to be... Uh, insensitive. I'm not saying this to like call out anybody, but here's how we got to practically apply the text. The thing that you want the most, maybe God is withholding those things on purpose. The thing that you're praying for, the thing that you're asking for, the thing that keeps you up at night, maybe that is the thing that God is intentionally withholding from you, not to hurt you, but to help you. There are a lot of young ladies in our church, and not just in our church, my heart goes out to a lot of young women who are desirous of marriage, and they're, they, have, they feel less than because they don't have a spouse, or even the guys in our church who feel like there's something wrong with them because they don't have a spouse. I'm going to present this to you. Maybe if we apply the passage closely and correctly, that the absence of the spouse is connected to the work of God. Also, there's adversity in any area of my life. Let's take my job, for instance. If the job is tough, and I want to give up, but I apply the text, could it be that the adversity on my job is connected to the work of God in my life? Could it be that the health concern that I'm dealing with, that I'm praying for, that I'm praying over, could it be that that health concern is connected to the work of God? And as believers, as biblical Christians, we've got to do the hard work of taking both at face value. I can't just take the A portion of the text and divorce it from the B portion of the text. I've got to take both of them because both of them are from the Lord. Not from Thomas, but from the Lord. When you, when you look at the passage, it's hard to 
really reconcile both of these things because it just doesn't make sense that God would be able to use both. It doesn't make sense that God would be able to use the day of adversity, but the text is teaching us that. There are a ton of verses. We can go to James. We can go to Philippians. But I want us to go quickly to 2 Corinthians 12 to talk about how God uses adversity to help us grow. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7 says, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Second Corinthians this is a, the Apostle Paul sharing his testimony about a season of adversity. This is a man who was empowered by the Holy Spirit to write the majority of the New Testament. This is a man who was faithful to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is a man who was a church planner and who was faithful until the end. And a part of his testimony is the Lord sent a messenger from Satan to greatly afflict me with a thorn in the flesh. A ministering messenger from Satan was given to him by God to help him grow. Like that doesn't even like it just it doesn't even make sense for me to say that, but this is what the scriptures are teaching us, and we've got to wrestle with. When you look at the text, Paul is clearly telling us that if he never had received the thorn in his flesh, then he would have never received the power to overcome the flesh. Verse 10 says, for the sake of Christ, then I am, I am content with my weaknesses. Why does God give us weakness? Why does God give us adversity? Because God wants us to find our strength in him and in no other place. I got too many notes this morning. I'm going to close this so I won't hold you out at one o'clock. When you think about the text, it's very easy for us to, to get in two different camps, Right? When I go through sin and suffering, some of us will say, you know what? You must be sinning. You, like when I'm going through adversity, you must be sinning. You must have done something wrong. You need to repent. Kind of like Joe's friends, right? You must have did something wrong because God loves you too much to let you go through this. On the other side, spiritual warfare is just all around us, right? Like there's some people, and I think this is funny, but it's, it may offend you. I hope it doesn't, but I think it's funny. There's some people, you don't put oil in your car and you blow a head gasket and you want to talk about Satan attacking your car. Stop. <laughs> you, you know how much money you have in your account and you swipe, swipe, swipe and you overdraft. That ain't no demon that overdrafted your account. <laughs> that was you, bro. That was you. So, so like, we gotta, we gotta see both sides, right? Like, there are, there are, there are times in my life where I have why well, I have sinned and I have been disobedient to God and because of my sin and disobedience to God, I have experienced suffering, I have experienced shame and it has hurt. 
There are other times in my life where I haven't done anything wrong. Where I've been faithful to God, I've been serving, I've been faithful, and the Lord has allowed me to go through suffering. And depending upon your theological background, depending upon your experience, I don't want you to assume one over the other. I want you to be willing in your life personally to say, you know what, Lord, teach me which one is which. And in the times of my life, when I am, when I am suffering because of my sin, Lord, please give me the grace to overcome my sin. And Lord, when you allow me to go through suffering because it's a part of your process of growth, Lord, allow me to endure it and allow me to be faithful because just because you're going through a hard season does not mean that God has forgotten about you and that God has forsaken you. Uh, Chris, could you come on back up now? And we're going to just do Build My Life one more time. We're going to do another song. We'll save it for next week. There, there are three very, very simple points of application for us today. Okay? So we look at the text. We look at the passage. You think about what Solomon is communicating in the seventh chapter. Okay? He's communicating, number one, that God desires for you to experience biblical community. Not just a bunch of people who will pat you on the back, people who will speak the truth. But for that to be possible, two things have got to be in place. Number one, you personally have got to be willing to listen. And then secondly, you got to have some wisdom in the room, right? You got to have some people who are a couple of stages ahead of you in life who are able to share some things with you. I really believe in my heart that that is what God desires for you because that is what's most beneficial for you spiritually. Not for you to have a bunch of people who tell you what you want to hear, but people who tell you what you need to hear. Secondly, God desires for you to experience biblical contentment. Contentment is going to be connected to you focusing on the end goal. The end goal for the Christian is not me being happy, me being satisfied, me getting what I want. The end goal for the believer is Christ being glorified. And when that's the end goal, my patience increases and my anger decreases. Thirdly, God desires that you experience biblical confidence. That means I can be joyful and I can celebrate the good days and know that those days are part of the work of God. But also, I can rejoice over the hard days. I can rejoice when things don't go my way because even in those days, I can see that God is not just working in my life, but God is working through my life. God, thank you for this time. I know I'm over today, but I thank you for the, the privilege that you give us, God, to be able to dig into your word. Um, it's been rich. It's been a blessing to be able to study. And God, as we get ready to sing before we go, God, help us to really wrestle with what it means to apply this truth. God, help us to really wrestle with what it means to live in biblical community. God, if we have folks who are here this morning who don't have that, I pray that they would take steps to get it in their lives. God, for those of us who are not content, God, keep us focused with the end goal in mind. 
God, help us to see that glorifying you has got to be the focus, that pleasing you is the most important thing, whether we are absent from you or present with you. And Lord God, we also pray, God, that you give us confidence that you are in control. God, we thank you that you are sovereign and we thank you that you are good. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.